Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Breast cancer stands alone right now in having two major biologic markers that determine systemic therapy, estrogen receptor and HER2 receptor status as measured in the tumor. These factors are primary considerations in the use of neoadjuvant and adjuvant systemic therapy and the management of metastatic disease. I met with Dr. Howard Skip Burris to explore how these critical factors are integrated into clinical decision-making, particularly in the adjuvant setting, and he began by commenting on his overall approach in the adjuvant situation. When you sit down with a patient, you're going to subset that patient so you look at pre- or postmenopausal, node positive or not, ER positive or not, and HER2 positive or not. And then the last thing that I write down for the quick cheat sheet is, what did the pathologist tell me about the grade of the tumor? You know, that will influence me if he said high grade or low grade, intermediate grade doesn't help me. High grade or aggressive gets me sort of rethinking that maybe we caught it early and it was going to be a bad tumor. And only 20% of the patients are HER2 positive. Almost two-thirds are probably ER positive. And, you know, depending on the numbers you get, more than half our patients are node negative. So it's a lot of the patients. I mean, you've probably got almost half the cancer patients we see nowadays have got node negative disease. And you're in that situation of a hormonal therapy is going to provide the majority of the benefit. And we should mention node negative is because of mammography. Node negative because of mammography. you compare that to 15, 20 years ago. Correct. So we're getting earlier diagnosis, more node-negative patients. Right. Earlier diagnosis. Smaller tumors. Smaller tumors, more node-negative. And that's where the smaller tumors, I do take a look. I think that the smaller tumor story is very important, and I have colleagues argue with me about it. But a smaller tumor that, for example, is hormonally negative or is HER2 positive or the pathologist tells me is very high grade, you know, I'm thinking better techniques. We found it earlier. 15 years ago when I was on my fellowship or 20 years ago in a fellowship, that would have been a bad tumor in six more months. So that being said, to me, the hard part about those adjuvant patients are 80% of their benefit, 70% of their benefit is going to come from their hormonal therapy. So that incremental benefit of adding on chemotherapy should go to who? And I guess one of the issues there that's only recently become evident, really, I think in the last two, three, four years, is we're really now getting out on the table that chemotherapy doesn't seem to work as well in ER-positive tumors. Correct. You know, that's it works, a, but not as well. Right. It works, but not as well. What about the hormone therapy? Really, you know, after a long time of just tamoxifen, now all of a sudden things are changing, particularly in the postmenopausal patient. And this kind of started, I guess, 2001. So it's really six years that everything sort of changed in postmenopausal patients. Can you review kind of what's happened and where we are right now? So for hormonal therapy, I mean, tamoxifen was the mainstay throughout the late 80s, early 90s. Early 90s, tamoxifen really became very clearly the most important thing we did in adjuvant therapy for ER-positive patients. And we went through the trials that took us from no tamoxifen to a year to two years to five years. And in the early 90s, I remember how shocked everybody was when it appeared that 10 years of tamoxifen was worse than five. And we all got the alert from the NIH and the cooperative groups that that trial showed that after seven years of tamoxifen, the numbers got a little worse for patients. So we began to really believe this whole idea that after many years of receiving tamoxifen, you know, you might actually lose some of that benefit and it might work against you. And then the aromatase inhibitors came along. And I think everybody was hopeful for a home run with the aromatase inhibitors. And instead, they've added a small but statistically significant benefit. There's some pros and cons to the aromatase inhibitors. But in every single trial, they always win versus tamoxifen. So we've been through anastrozole, letrozole, 
exomestine, and there's always a head-to-head advantage, always a positive p-value, and always not a huge clinical benefit. But when you're in terms of an absolute number, when you translate that over 100,000 women, you know, you're helping another 10,000 women or so by using an aromatase inhibitor. The number I see thrown around a lot is a 20% additional reduction in risk of recurrence with AI versus tamoxifen. I don't, do you buy into that? I would that? agree. I mean, I, I think about a 20% so, proportional risk so reduction. So one out of five relapses, that's not too bad. for. And then I guess the other issue would be that although there are issues, and I'm curious about your take on them, particularly the arthralgias, in terms of potentially life-threatening toxicity, bone kind of seems like it's getting under control with the bisphosphonate monitoring bone, et cetera, et cetera. Tamoxifen, we always had the thrombosis and endometrial cancer, which you can't really predict, and not that great of diseases. Correct. I think the risk-reward ratio for their uh, aromatase inhibitors, it gets into a common discussion I have with my nurses and nurse practitioners is we've got some interesting data on a switching strategy. So you give tamoxifen and then you follow that with an aromatase inhibitor. And I think about this all the time because certainly at some of these roundtables, it's who would you start on tamoxifen nowadays that's postmenopausal. And it still keeps coming up that I don't do it. It and keeps coming up. what patient wants to take a therapy that has a higher relapse rate? Correct. And so, you know, I love it when I get a 50-year-old woman that's not quite in to the menopause yet, because then I feel comfortable that I'm going to do a couple of years of tamoxifen and switch them over. And that's what a lot of you know, premenopause women, that's kind of what happens. And that's what happens. But they for go through true... menopause, they start out on tamoxifen, they get their chemo, they go through menopause, maybe either because of chemo or maybe just because they're older. They become postmenopausal, they get an AI. Correct. And so you like that better? I do. But for postmenopausal women, I start them on an aromatase inhibitor. And my plan is to do that for five years. And I actually tell my patients nowadays when we start it that there's a lot of data out there and we'll keep talking about it as it rolls. And we're starting for five years. There's an occasional patient that has some poor prognostic features that I might say, you know, mentally we might be taking this for a very long time. But I, I guess the other thing, too, is you can see how the woman does. If she's having a lot of problems, it's one thing. If she's having zero problems and can pay for it, you know, maybe. And the thing is, like, since this started in 2001, 2007, now we're starting to come up on people hitting five years. Yes. And so I'm sure you're starting to see those people come through your clinic. And, of course, there are trials, randomizing between continuation or not. A lot of people look at the original risk, whether they node negative, node positive, when they decide whether they're going to continue beyond five years. What do you do? And, of course, how they're doing. Right. And I would say I'm almost running 50-50 right. on who continues past five years. That's what I'm hearing. I have, of the half that don't continue, half of that half because I don't think they need it, their risk was so low, and half because they don't want to do it. What about the downside? Do you agree? I mean, initially, we didn't know what these AIs were going to do to bone, so they weren't even looking at bone. But now we're much more careful about it. Now that we sort of have a way to deal with this, when a woman says, you know, in my hands, as I follow your regimen, am I going to be an increased risk for a fracture? How do you answer it? I mean, I tell those patients now that we're going to provide appropriate supportive care so they're not going to be at an increased risk for fracture, that they're at an increased risk for getting osteopenia, and we're going to monitor them, and at the first signs of osteopenia, we're going to intervene. And It looks like the bisphosphonates work. 
The breast phosphonates work well, and it's interesting. My mother, who has had the good fortune of not having a breast cancer problem, has a strong family history of osteopenia. And, you know, it's been amazing for her. And she had a difficult time with the orals and has done well with the intravenous. How often did she get it? And she took the intravenous every six months for a couple of years, and now her results were so good she's going to take it once a year. Yeah, so, I'd you know, rather... she's sort of amazed, and she's sort of mad that nobody mentioned to her that when she struggled through the first two years of the pills. And, you know, it's one of those... Problems. She did. She had a lot of GI. She had a lot of reflux issues, a lot of indigestion problems with the pills. What about the arthralgias? Initially, it didn't seem like it was that much of a problem in the trials, but when we started looking in the community, do our patterns of care studies, etc., we found a lot of people bringing this up as a concern. Not necessarily that common that they had to switch it or stop it, but deal with it. Is that your experience? It really goes back and forth. I mean, I find that the patients who are extremely active, and I don't know if I want to say they're a little more fit, but Hmm. I find the people that are out there really being very busy with their daily lives, don't complain about it as much, and the patients who are maybe a little more sedentary. I also think patients are very suggestive to the power of whatever you insinuate the toxicity might be. So I actually sort of struggle with how much to emphasize it, and I know my nurses do as well, because you feel like you look at a patient, and personality-wise, you put the thought you say, in their well, head. You might get some aches and pains, and everybody. You know, and everybody gets aches and pains. And, but, so and it's the hard thing is, if you really look at, for example, the attack study, the first trial, at least the way they reported it, the incidence of arthralgias is in the 35-40% range in the AI and astrazole, but actually it was like 29% with tamoxifen. So, you know, and probably if you look at people who don't get any therapy, I don't know what the incidence would be of arthralgias if you ask people, do you have aches and pains? But clearly there's something going on. It stops when you stop the drug. I mean, it's for real. There is, and it's probably taken that block on the estrogen to an extreme effect. That's obviously an important hormone for a lot of things. Used estrogen, Your body's used to it, so you're getting that whole well, it effect. That makes sense, you know, and is there a consistent pattern of location, like hands versus knees, back stuff? What do you think? No, I don't. And actually, that's an excellent point to bring up. I mean, I have patients who talk about their knees. I have patients who talk about their low back. To me, I was sort of convinced that low back wasn't an issue. To me, it seemed like it made more sense for it to be wrists and ankles. But I find individual patients complain about different things. Interesting. Getting back to this issue of the node-negative ER-positive patient, you've talked a little bit about the issue of hormone therapy. I guess the other thing about hormone therapy that we should comment on before maybe getting back to chemo is our increased awareness of the risk over time. And I think even though we sort of had this general idea that people with breast cancer can relapse, I think it seems like in the last maybe three or four years, we've become much more aware of how high that risk is. And that, you know, women who are five and 10 and up to maybe 15 years after diagnosis with ER positive tumors in particular are really at high risk for relapse. Is that your take? It is, and I think that's been underappreciated. So when Bonadonna did the follow-up from Italy and those curves were presented, nobody wanted to talk about them, but there was a slow but steady rate of relapse that was still occurring 20 years later. When you say Bonadonna, you're talking about the first adjuvant chemo trial. Correct. So the initials taking CMF chemotherapy versus no treatment, and this was done in the early 70s. And 15 and 20-year follow-up show a very slow but steady rate of relapse. And then you look at the recent data that was presented at the ASCO meeting that came out of the NSABP database that looked at the same issues and looked at ER-positive versus ER-negative tumors. And to very oversimplify it, 
it's clear that in estrogen negative tumors, you get your benefit from the chemo and you find out if you got that benefit during the first five years. And so the and ER if negative. You haven't pa- relapsed by three, four, five years, you're pretty you're, good chance. Pretty good chance that you're going to get colon cancer. Correct. And with an ER positive tumor, we've done a lot of things. Half those patients are getting chemo, maybe a little bit more. Everybody's getting hormonal therapy. And so. In a certain percent of those patients, you've cured them. And in a certain percent of those patients, you've just put your finger in the dike. And 10 years later, they're slowly relapsing. And that number has been very, very sobering. And, you know, you see those come up in your clinic. And then the last point to add to that is taking five years of letrozole after five years of tamoxifen versus no additional therapy. That rate of relapse that continued to occur during those second five years was sobering. I mean, I participated in a number of community ad boards and lectures where docs were astonished by that number. It just didn't cross their mind that it would be that high. Well, the number, if you go to Peter Rabin's adjuvant online, you know, roughly the number I believe, is in the range of, okay, from years 5 to 10, if your original tumor is node positive, 4% a year, 20% relapse in five years, one out of five women, probably half as great in node negative. Right, and that's, buy, exactly, buy those that's exactly what I quote, the 4% that's, per year. If you have a busy practice, if you're seeing 25 patients a day, four days a week, you're going to see that come up once a month, which is a lot in a practice. Well, the other thing that's amazing is that it looks like hormonal therapy works out there that they still are sensitive and you give them, you know, an AI, you give them letrozole at year eight or nine or something and they have fewer, like a lot less relapses. Yes. It's amazing. I've heard people start to talk about this like it's kind of follicular lymphoma. Does that make sense to you? Not a bad analogy. I hadn't thought of it that way. You Um, know, like long-term remitting, you can't cure it. Hopefully some of the breast cancer patients or most of them are cured, but, and that you just keeps going. I trained in San Antonio, and the late Bill McGuire and Kent Osborne and the group that trained us would go crazy when a fellow would use the word that they had cured a breast cancer patient. And Bill McGuire was an endocrinologist, and that was his background, and Kent Osborne trained under him. And that was the buzzword that would get you in trouble at <laughs> a conference, was to say that you'd cured right. somebody. They believed in the paradigm that probably much like a low-grade lymphoma, that it was more that scenario. Now, I want to ask you about, we were talking about, again, the scenario of node negative, ER positive, should you give chemo? You know, most of these people are going to remain disease-free. I won't say are cured. Hormone therapy is going to have a big impact. They may need it for a long time, but can you get a little bit more out of chemotherapy? And in that regard, what your thoughts are about Oncotype DX? Because to me, this situation is totally different in the clinic today than it was four years ago because of Oncotype. Right. And the Oncotype DX, and there's a very important trial that we've participated in, the Taylor X trial, which is going to look at these intermediate patients. So I think we all feel pretty good about identifying high-grade patients, so the high-risk patients. So we're pretty good at that. You know, different things like being HER2 positive or strong number of lymph nodes or anything like that. And then I think we all either feel pretty good about low risk or something about the patient is telling us to only do the hormonal therapy. It could be age coupled with comorbid conditions, other diseases they have. It could be an incredibly low-grade tumor the pathologist describes as well-differentiated and strongly ERPR positive and known lymph nodes. But there's a lot of patients out there, and the patients that I get the Oncotype DX on, a patient that's got a tumor that's two centimeters, three centimeters, and that happens. And obviously, relationship of size of tumor to breast size can be an issue. But Still you know, no negative. Still no negative. And 
That's a little big to be not giving chemotherapy to. If you and follow like four the years answer, ago, that woman's getting chemo. Period. That woman's getting chemotherapy, and she's getting an anthracycline, and she's Absolutely. getting aggressive treatment. She might even get a taxane. And she's eligible for all the trials and everything. Mm-hmm. And but now know, she gets an archetype, and it's got a low recurrence score. Correct. And now you feel she very comfortable. Chemo. You get very comfortable not giving the patient chemotherapy. And then the other thing is the patient with a 1.1 centimeter tumor who four years ago maybe was going to get chemo, kind of depends if she's 60, 65, people start backing off. Now she's got a high recurrence score. She's getting chemo now. Exactly. I mean, that's not every patient, but it's a lot of patients who kind of had their course changed. Correct. And I think you have to be very careful how you talk to those patients. And I think that we go back and forth. We have a phenomenon in Nashville where we have some of the surgeons ordering the Oncotype DX. And the only disadvantage to that is if the results are given to the patient before we see them, we kind of have almost got the horse out of the barn before we lock the door. Yep. A fair number come out in the intermediate zone, and that's a tougher discussion. Or they've already been told or thinking they don't need chemo, and then they walk in the door to see us, and their recurrence score is 26. Everything about their tumor sounded good. Wasn't too big, the lymph nodes were negative, and it's ER positive, and then the recurrence grade comes back at that sort of level. And, you know, if it's my wife, sister, mother, you're talking them into taking some therapy with that. And, you know, maybe it's kind of look at it like genetic testing, that maybe it should be ordered by the people who know how to explain it to the patient. And it's such a paradigm shift from, it wasn't too many years ago, I reviewed a paper that was being circulated where the NCI had done a surveillance of community practices. And the community practices were not in little towns. It was Los Angeles, Atlanta, Houston, and Detroit. And they graded oncologists as whether they were giving appropriate adjuvant therapy. And that was at the days where the consensus guidelines said that all women with tumors greater than one centimeter, regardless of nodal status, ER status, would benefit and should receive adjuvant chemotherapy. And then when the NCI surveyed those populations, they found that only 70% of women were getting adjuvant chemotherapy. Well, you break those numbers down, talking about the factors we talked about at the beginning, that number made sense to me. I was a reviewer. I was comfortable with 70%. My problem was the adjective saying that was too low, that it should be 90 95%. 70%, that means that half of these women that are in that group that we're talking about that are ER positive, no negative, aren't getting chemotherapy. And probably half that group in general doesn't need chemotherapy. Which half that is, is the part where something like Oncotype DX or the next genetic test helps with. Well, you know what I've seen in a couple different surveys now, it kind of came out with the same number, which is when docs are using Oncotype in situations where really it's going to change what they do, that in fact, maybe one out of four times, it really does change what they're going to do. So you say to them, what do you think you do without the oncotype? Then you get the oncotype. What do you do? One out of four times. So either they get chemo and they wouldn't have gotten it, or they don't get it and they would have, which I think is probably more common. But both things happen. Correct. That's a great thing for women. I it can't is. wait till they get it in colon and every other place. Colon's coming instantly. I guess you know that pretty soon. Hopefully next year or so. The other thing that's kind of going to be coming up soon that I'm super excited about is apparently the Oncotype now is going to be put out to provide quantitative ER. Can you explain that, you know, in terms of the issue of trying to figure out, quote, who's ER positive and how ER positive they are, the challenge we've had in that, and the Oncotype type assay in that regard? So I guess one analogy that comes to mind is almost the story of patients that are HER2 positive by IHC, which is what we do for estrogen. So the pathologist does a stain and comes back and says, about this many cells overexpressed. They're looking at the protein. And they're looking at the protein. Stain. 
And then you're looking at the HER2 fish story, fluorescent in situ hybridization, where you're actually looking at gene copy numbers. DNA. The actual DNA. So if you could actually have a quantitative assay to say that patient's got this level of estrogen overexpression, it's interesting when people have done reviews of tumor specimens and sent them to a different lab to be refereed, and we did this a lot in San Antonio with the cooperative group studies, about 30% of the time there was a discordance. Yep. Which is too high. Which is not good. One in three patients having a potentially wrong estrogen result for their cancer, when that's probably the single most important factor. in Unbelievable scandal for the last 15 years we've known that. And whatever we can do to make that more of a quantitative number, it's almost like going from the chest X-ray right. to the CT scan. Exactly. So what you're saying essentially when you say 30%, I've heard 20%, but whatever it is, is not 2% or 0.1%, which it needs to be, which is a woman's told she has an ER negative tumor. And in fact, it's really ER positive. She doesn't get hormone therapy. She doesn't have a drop in relapse rate of 50% from something non-toxic because they got her test wrong. And she potentially took took chemotherapy she didn't need to take because that was maybe the only factor that tilted the doctor to give her chemotherapy. And the other side would be somebody who's labeled as having an ER positive tumor who really doesn't and has taken hormone therapy, maybe exposed to, you know, we talked about the problems that can occur for no reason. Not good. Okay. So now, Oncotype looks at it's an RT-PCR. I don't know if you can explain what that is in terms of, I guess the key thing is it's done on regular tissue that's formalized in the lab. And I guess they're kind of looking at a reflection of the DNA and the RNA that they've come up with this technique, and they quantitate it. And, of course, the Oncotype itself includes looking at genes related to ER, HER2, proliferation. They've already been, we know that's part of the formula in the assay. So now what they're saying is they're going to report the ER quantitatively. What they're actually studying for that is they're actually looking at the level of the DNA of the chromosome. They're looking at the estrogen expression. And where we talk about RT-PCR this polymerase chain reaction technique is CML. So chronic myelogenous leukemia, RT-PCR bone marrows to look for the abnormalities. It's just a way of life in certain hematologic malignancies. So to take that and apply it to breast cancer is not a big stretch. We've been sending this to pathology labs and having RT-PCR performed on bone marrows to determine if the Philadelphia chromosome, the Philadelphia chromosome actually is there to treat somebody with Gleevec or Amantinib or one of the agents for CML. So it's not a super new technique, but it's taken a technique that's proven. And now, you know, instead of giving it to the poor thousands of patients that have CML, but using it in 200,000 women with breast cancer, of which you're going to make a huge societal benefit. So, and we know that if this is going to be a step forward in being accurate with the ER, it's going to save lives. And I would imagine that the data is going to support it. Obviously, they're not going to report it, but we'll see. We'll take a look at it. Then the other thing, of course, which is now, I mean, because it's one thing when you have a marker that's in a palliative setting and then another curative. So the next thing on the table, I'd like to see Oncotype take a crack at is HER2. And that's really the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is adjuvant therapy of the patient with a HER2 positive tumor, because that's way different today than it was way back in 2005. And the adjuvant therapy of somebody with HER2 disease. Right. (laughs) 2005. Can you imagine that? And I had commented earlier, I came through my fellowship in the late 80s in San Antonio, and we called it CRB2. Right. And... All we were being told was we would get a pathology report back that would say your patient's tumor overexpressed CRB2, 
and this was associated with a worse prognosis, right. but should not be used for clinical practice because there wasn't anything we could do about it. And then we had this series of retrospective looks at studies that included anthracyclines, doxorubicin, and we knew that it helped them a little bit. But the statistic that bore out from those cooperative group studies were if you were HER2 overexpressing patient, your survival was going to be half that, half as long of that of a patient that was HER2 normal. And in the last 12 years, the trials have been done, the therapies moved forward, and now in the last two years, it's all of a sudden become the single worst prognostic factor that we could have told a woman 15 years ago is now the prognostic factor that every doctor hopes she has. Every physician sees a pathology report come back in the adjuvant setting and the patient's HER2 overexpressing. They feel good about the treatment. They know that they're going to give trastuzumab and they're going to have a tremendous benefit for that population of patients. Although they're starting out with a more aggressive tumor. But they start with a much more aggressive tumor. And so, you know, I don't know how much more the relapse rate is. You would hear different estimates of that. But then, of course, you're talking about cutting it in half, maybe, with trastuzumab. Probably cutting half with trastuzumab. And the point you bring up, which is excellent, which is, you know, as you look across these numbers, and we're very impressed by the curve differences, you've still got 15% 15% of those patients relapsing as the curves begin to come out. So you mean with what, adjuvant trastuzumab? As we're getting out now a few years from those right. trials first being reported. Um, I mean, it's not 100%, there's no doubt. And that's why all. there's another generation of trials trying to get for better results. And yet, my point was, that's a population of patients where there's something nice as a physician to think you know for sure what's the best therapy for that patient. So we were talking earlier about ER positive, node negative, and do you give chemo to any of those people, and how do you give it to those women, and when should you do it? Then you got the ER negative, HER2 negative group of patients, and you know they have to get chemotherapy, and we all argue about what's the best, and which taxane, and how aggressive, and four cycles are eight. But one can make an argument that there's many styles of giving trastuzumab adjuvantly, but we all, I certainly am in the group that feel like, well, I know I'm giving best therapy to that patient. They still might have a poor prognosis compared to some other patients, but you really feel good knowing that you're doing the right thing. And of course, the other thing that's really exciting about adjuvant trastuzumab is the downside is not too high. Certainly, the patients don't feel bad. I mean, you're not giving a therapy that makes them sicker. Correct? Correct. The side effects for it are very minimal. It turns out that we feel very comfortable saying that small percentage, 2, 3, 4%, that have some decline in the cardiac ejection fraction that recovers. That's not the... Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about because that's one thing I have seen some stuff in the last year. You're talking about 2005. that is changed, and that is the question of, okay, yeah, the one thing that is out on the table is the potential for cardiac toxicity. But now in the last year, it looks like the alternative is out there on the table for something that maybe doesn't have much of any cardiac toxicity, which is chemotherapy without an anthracycline and trastuzumab. Is that your take? I do take that position. And of all the things I've been an early adopter for and doing a lot of work with investigational drugs, I've leaned in the direction of being an early adopter. But the results for giving a taxane with cyclophosphamide in some scenarios with carboplatin with the trastuzumab data, the overall risk-benefit ratio there I'm convinced of. If I could think of one drug that I wouldn't want to give if I didn't have to give it would be an anthracycline, would give doxorubicin. And the results are just very, very impressive in terms of the overall benefit. You even take out those few patients with the leukemia side effects and you take the toxicity differences. I mean, I think that's an impressive qualitative advance. So if a patient who's going to consider, I guess, the taxane regimen that we have the most data on, or really, I guess the only thing is 
called TCH, docetaxel, carboplatin, all those you mentioned, people are talking about trying cyclophosphamide and trastuzumab. So if you're going to bring that up to a woman as a possibility in the adjuvant setting who's you know, a healthy woman without prior cardiac disease, and she says, what's the chance that this is going to increase my chance of having heart failure, what would you say? I give that number to that patient of about 1%, and I feel fairly comfortable that might even be a high be, number. I was going to say, could it be closer to zero? I think, and I tell patients when I tell them 1% that I feel pretty comfortable that's the high number, and that it certainly could be less than that. Another issue about adjuvant trastuzumab, there's a lot of debate about, again, the smaller node-negative tumors. So we are talking before about that with the HER2 negative situation, but also there are women who have half centimeter, one centimeter HER2 positive tumors where it's node negative. And the controversy about how low do you go, how small can the tumor be where you still want to recommend trastuzumab. You've got 50-year-old woman, perfectly healthy, no hypertension, nothing whatsoever. How low would you go? And so that's a great case. And I'm somebody that goes pretty low. And I say that with the standpoint, to me, I'm a believer that we've identified a group of patients with a poor prognosis by having the HER2 gene amplified. We have a therapy that's effective against it. And so the lowest I've had is six millimeters, but I have actually given trastuzumab to a woman with a six millimeter tumor that was node negative. And we debated about doing any chemotherapy or not. And she took TC. She was was 44 years old, and so that weighed a little bit that she was younger. So, TC being docetaxel cyclophosphamide or Docetaxel carboplatin. Carbo. Okay, so the TCH, really. The TCH regimen. And she, she, took, she, took, she did fine with it. And I had a case the other day, which is a patient that had some cardiac risk factors, hmm. had a family history. She was in her mid-50s. She had hypertension, the kind of scenario we all talk about when you bounce around about a patient. And her tumor was very small. It was right at 10 millimeters, one centimeter. And she was node negative, and we get IHC back sternally at our group. So you get your pathology report back. It's an all-IHC immunohistochemical. So the pathologist did the stains for the protein, and we get ER, PR, and HER2. And she comes back HER2 3+. And so I fished her did the fluorescent in situ hybridization to see how many gene copies she had. Because quite frankly, if she had come back at three gene copies or four mildly elevated, anything over two being abnormal, well, she came back with 25 gene copies. So it's almost like the Oncotype DX where you send it off and you were expecting a score of three and it comes back at 35. I'm thinking this woman's barely got breast cancer and her gene copy number is 25. So she had a tumor. If she'd stayed at home and ignored it in six or eight months, it would have been a crazy tumor. Do you think so? I mean, do we really know that gene copies correlated with behavior? I mean, that's a good point. But, but I mean, my, it, in our sense is that. That it is. I guess I don't honestly know the answer to that question, but in my heart, I believe anybody that's got that many gene copies, and I've got a therapy that I know turns off that right, switch. Right. So we did it, and we gave it to her. What about the choice of hormonal therapy? And half of the people who have HER2-positive tumors have ER-positive tumors. They're kind of triple positive if it's PR, but it's not uncommon What about the choice of hormonal therapy and how well hormonal therapy works in these ER-positive, HER2-positive patients? So a few scares back and forth about the data. I think the summary of the data seems to be that you can give tamoxifen and you can give an aromatase inhibitor with trastuzumab. And while you might 
not have true synergism, i.e. 1 plus 1 equals 3, you certainly have no disadvantage. It doesn't diminish the effect of either agent. So I feel comfortable from the compilation of data. Now, there was a trial that was performed that looked at anastrozole plus trastuzumab versus anastrozole alone. That was in the metastatic setting. And it was in the metastatic setting. And some people took that trial as not being as positive as they wanted it to be. But to me, I mean, looked at that result to say that we're doing no harm in that scenario. There is an incremental benefit. It wasn't the home run folks hoped for, but going into the adjuvant setting, it gave me great comfort for giving an aromatapes inhibitor with trastuzumab, and that tends to be my standard practice. Which is, I mean, if they're HER2 positive, they're most likely, unless they're super tiny, going to get trastuzumab. And I think the thing about that study was that people came away saying, well, maybe hormonal therapy doesn't work as well on these people, and maybe the relapse rate's going to be a little bit higher. But the other thing is that I think we know that these women, the actual quantity of ER maybe is less. So if we do start getting this quantitative ER, maybe that will be the thing that we'll start looking at. That's an excellent point. And the question is, will anybody be able to garner the support and interest to do the trial of the ER positive, no negative, HER2 positive patient? who might benefit from trastuzumab and aromatase inhibitor therapy and get no chemo. So could you come back now and do TCH versus an aromatase inhibitor plus H plus trastuzumab perceptin? And would somebody do that trial? And it's kind of going back to, I thought of that when we talked about Kathy Albane's trial, where it's really one of the last studies where a potential chemotherapy population received tamoxifen alone. The trastuzumab data is so impressive, you just wonder if that's good enough with a hormonal treatment for those patients. That'd be interesting. I think the other thing is, is there going to be a role for fulvestrin or fazlodex in the future for these patients with HER2-positive, ER-positive tumors? Because Slayman, you know, the sort of the father of trastuzumab, has been interested in that, thinking that the different mechanism there with the fulvestrin maybe in these tumors is going to be more useful. So fulvestrin, which ablates the estrogen receptor, so the injectable that actually, it is a different mechanism on what it affects. And I've been impressed with Slayman and Pegram's data in that regard that I've used that in the clinic. In the metastatic setting, that's what we're doing nowadays. And we actually have randomized trials now that are looking at the relative benefits of giving fulvestrin and the aromatase inhibitors with bevacizumab and with trastuzumab. And I think those are important trials to do. I mean, we need to find out if fulvestrin has an incremental advantage and if there's a population of patients that it's superior in. Yeah, I wonder, too, you know, we kind of haven't talked too much about combining hormonal therapy. We combine biologics, and in the next HER2-positive trials, they're going to probably, one of them is going to add in bevacizumab, anti-VEGF agent. The other one's going to look at lapatinib, another biologic agent. So the issue of what about combined hormone therapy, we sort of haven't really seen, other than using maybe ovarian ablation and suppression plus treatment, We haven't done that too much, but yet there are trials out there looking at combining an AI and fulvestrin. It kind of makes sense. You know, you're hitting it from two different ways. No, I think it's very worthwhile. And again, that, you know, has been through time the single biggest improvement you can make in adjuvant therapy. So whatever you can do to fine-tune that therapy and make it better certainly makes sense. And we're taking a step in that direction with HER2 therapy with the very large ALTO trial. So we'll see trastuzumab and lapatinib, but also the combination and the sequence being explored. So the idea of doubling up with different mechanisms, an antibody and a small molecule taken intracellularly. And it makes sense to look at an estrogen ablating agent 
and, and aromatase inhibitors. They really are doing different things. You know, we're hearing that all these tumors. Renal cell, the term I've heard is vertical targeting of a receptor. You hit it at different levels outside the cell, inside the cell. So hormone therapy is kind of, I guess, the first biologic therapy. And so vertical targeting. And again, one example would be the premenopausal patient where some people use ovarian suppression or take out the ovaries and then add either tamoxifen or an AI. There are trials looking at that. Is that something you ever do off study? There is. There are trials looking at that approach, and I do do that off-study, and I did it two weeks ago, and I'm doing it the first week of January. And what I mean by that is just about eight weeks from now, I have a very young woman who's 41 years old, and we've just talked about the fact that she doesn't want to take an injection of an LHRH. She doesn't want to take a hormone blocker injection every three months for the next seven or eight or nine years when she's into the menopause. She want more kids or kids? No, she doesn't want more kids. And, she has uh, children already? She has children already. She has two children. The youngest one's five. And we've decided she needs the maximum ovarian suppression. And she had a very strong ER-positive tumor. And so the route's going to be she has actually taken a few months of the LHRH. She's getting through the holidays. Mm-hmm. And she's scheduled her oophorectomy laparoscopically. And that's her choice. And, and you know, those are hard trials to do. to that? And she'll get an aromatase number. She can give her an AI. Interesting. You know, because we should say that this is certainly not standard therapy. A lot of people think you shouldn't do this. But, you know, we did this survey of oncologists about what would you do if you had colon cancer. I'd like to do the same thing in breast cancer and say, suppose you were 41 years old, strongly ER positive tumor. You didn't want to have any more kids. Would you want to have a lap? You know, try it out. See how you feel if you're miserable or not. Not too miserable. Get your ovaries taken out laparoscopically. I mean, it doesn't get done much. A lot of the researchers say you should never do it. But if it's me, I'm thinking about taking my ovaries out. And I agree. And I think that it's one of those cases you take home and bounce off the wife. But you really? know, I bounce think, off the wife? Yes, I did. And, you know, the issue of the injection, and you're right, I approach it just like you said. I don't rush into it. I want women to feel what it's like for a few months yeah. taking the injection. Well, do you see women who are super miserable? Yes. And actually, the failed trial that Nancy Davidson presented at ASCO where they couldn't finish accruing to the trial of giving the LHRH blocker versus the oophorectomy because women felt so bad. People didn't want to do the study, Hmm. and so people bailed out. So that trial accrued 180 of the 800 patients they needed back in the early 90s and never got finished. I mean, I guess the same thing happens when women have hysterectomies, total hysterectomies, when they suddenly have their ovaries taken out, they're suddenly menopausal. So I imagine there's a spectrum there. Of course, there, there's nothing you can do about it. Here, you take the injection. You could theoretically stop taking the injection and let your ovaries come back. Correct. When you do that, incidentally, how long does it take? Have you ever had to do that, or have you done it? To uh, or, take Actually, so that must happen every time you take somebody off therapy. Correct. So let's say you have somebody on an LHRH agonist, and you take them off. Do they sort of bounce back and the symptoms get better in a few weeks? Does it take months? How it takes long? months. I mean, I, it's like it's prostate clearly, probably. It's clearly prostate not a few cancer. weeks. And, you know, it's clearly two to four months before. Two to four out. months. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I guess there's a big variation. I guess women who go through natural menopause, it sounds like there's some physiologic adaptation that maybe in a lot of women the symptoms get better. Is that what you see when it's done therapeutically? I do think that's right. Is that where your wife's coming in in terms of telling you about it? (laughs) You know, I think that it's just interesting how different women go through the menopause and the symptoms. And that's one of those things that's the the art of medicine. cycles too. I mean, there's a lot of variation there. But the idea of trying it out. And then I guess if you're okay after a few months, it's pretty likely you'll be okay. Right. Watch their bones, just like you got to watch everybody else. 
Interesting. Do you think when you add an AI and 41-year-old woman on top of making her menopausal, and now you're dropping her estrogen levels even more, way down with an AI, does that make them more menopausal symptomatic? I believe I've had that happen in one woman. I currently have a woman who's in that scenario who's working and either she's extremely stoic or, and she's fit. She's out there, and she's you know, doing okay. things and she feels fine. Yeah. I mean, she says she has a few bone aches and pains mm-hmm. and she's done fine with the hot flashes. We did the effects uh, for her hot flashes and she did well with you that. You got to seriously watch their bones too. Oh, sure. No, right. That's, but I mean, the good thing is at least what I've seen in the trials, like I know there was that Austrian study, you give them bisphosphonates and you stop losing bone. Right. And there's better and better bone therapies coming along. So I think that field's going to continue to get a little simpler and a little better.